Hello everyone and welcome to episode 114 of Dominario Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed magic podcast. I'm Dom Harvey, I'm here with Ari Lax, and this week, my friend, I'm thinking about those beans. Yeah, I mean, everyone is, right? Everyone loves to draw cards. Uh, it is Magic Twitter's favorite pastime is drawing cards that draw more cards, um, especially in ways where you like, not like the elves thing where you draw more cards and then you like generate more mana and then you create this crazy game engine and your opponent like has to be explained what happens when Wirewood Symbiote turns into an elf. Uh, no, no, they just, just draw cards to for the purpose of drawing more cards with no real end goal in sight. You can also use this card in that way, as uh, some more uh, adventurous lists have tried this week, across various formats. And that's that's really the hook here, is that uh, Up the Beanstalk has got its hooks in to basically every format. Uh, not quite vintage yet, although uh, Justin Gennari is, is doing his best on that front. And one of those cards which it's seeing enough play already that I wonder, is this another case where we just missed something fundamental about this card or is this the the week one uh the one ring hype cycle where people are putting in literally everything that moves and then you fast forward two months and this is dialed down to just being another cool thing that's going on in the format at this point hard to say at this stage but we thought that we would uh, cycle through each of those formats looking at uh the various ways that people are hoping to scale the beanstalk and then using that as a jumping off point for what else is going on in these formats these days because all of them are seeing uh quite a bit of churn at the moment and there's i think most of them have also had uh, some some large big online tournaments to uh, sink our teeth into as well i i guess to to speak broadly on the card up the beanstalk i am fairly impressed with it as an engine but i think that the cards you have to play to enable it have problems at various points it is a little bit less just like i don't know you just cast the one ring and then kill your opponent because you drew 87 cards it's like every card that you draw with up the beanstalk has to be a five drop and there are problems with the various categories of five drops that i think uh looking ahead will probably be where formats sort of turn to if this card is really taking over yeah, I think the thing that makes it worth exploring is the floor is high and the base case of this just replaces itself when it comes in and then maybe a few turns down the line, I draw one card off it. That's still a pretty good rate for two mana, especially if you have any kind of blink synergy, enchantment synergy, any other way to use this this rectangle, if you like, that you have uh, developed onto the board. But then you can also just go completely hog wild with it and use it as this bizarro build your own glimpse of nature or something. And uh, I think it's easy to talk yourself into that first case that gets your foot in the door and then find yourself down this this rabbit hole of i'm building my whole deck around this this beanstalk engine which eh, you could probably do 40 percent of that and still get the important part but having more sound deck uh, overall but the fun of this uh process at this stage is watching people who are trying to do the 110 percent part as opposed to the perhaps more disciplined uh 40 part yeah i mean we've we have been through basically this exact same song and dance with risen reef before um, but it the floor on Beanstalk is higher than that card. Uh, the ceiling is yeah. basically the same, it feels like, but the, the floor is definitely higher. Let's talk about the card just conceptually then, because in the context of its limited format, uh, the CMC 5 or more thing, or mana value, if you will, that makes some amount of sense. You, you need some kind of theme like that. And then uh, in the smaller formats like Standard or Pioneer, where you are mostly actually paying five mana for your spells, then uh, you are doing the thing that the card ostensibly asks you to do. And there are ways to fudge out with Leyline Binding and so on. But uh, for the most part, if you are spending mana to cast your spells, then the inputs and outputs on this 
makes sense and i think it's fun to consider how do you actually lean into that without just filling your deck with all of these five drops and six drops that clog your hand in the larger formats where you're triggering this almost always with cards which you, you never have to spend uh, five mana on and if you are it's because the game has developed to the point where oh yeah i i'm using my omnath uh fetch land sequence and the free mana from that to curve into my solitude and drawing a card as a bonus but the the, the joke here is i'm casting be- uh solitude for free and then triggering my beanstalk anyway and at that point it feels like you have cheated the system to some degree and that the card is almost false advertising at that point <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I want to rewind to something you mentioned about, like, paying the mana for the spells. This is, I think this kind of goes back to something that we have learned since, in, like, the post-war, the Spark Fire era, is kind of just, like, the power of actual card draw and Constructed has gone down because it is so easy to spend your mana and purchase a card that provides a card of value in some kind of immediately tangible form. So, like, playing a 5-drop and drawing a card off up the Beanstalk is not always something that you care about you would rather just like like it you know um i'm trying to think of a good example five drop all like even let's just look at like shoulder it from like the five mana one from march of the machine like you cast that card and if you drew a card in addition to the part where it like edicted your opponent and threatened to like do i don't even know what the text of the backside is at this point win the game because of whatever else like who cares most of the time but there's still like 25% of matchups where it does matter because you and your opponent are like throwing two for ones in a tradey way at each other. Um, but then obviously we step into the the legacy world and the modern world where a lot of that is kind of out the window. And that dynamic does compound on itself, I think, where when all of the the cards that produce card advantage do it by playing to the board eventually all of those kind of trade off with each other to some extent and then having more of those initial rectangles is good or something which goes over the top of those other means of producing rectangles like when when that is the basic term of engagement you need some way to subvert that or get an edge there one comparison that really suggests itself it might actually be lorian revealed where in uh, modern and legacy a lot of these being sold decks are lorian reveal decks and uh that card has really taken over basically every format that is legal in including uh vintage as well where it might be the most important card from the entire set uh and there the ability to pay five mana and draw three cards i think often you still would play the, the uh the card without that if it was just blank text but this is blue and you can island cycle it it would i think still be across the line but yeah there will be 15 20 percent some number of games where you draw this where yeah you just pay five mana draw three cards that kind of effect even with a lot of bells and whistles attached by itself is not worth it anymore but if you can find other ways to smuggle that into your deck then yeah sometimes you you do actually trade off and you top deck this and it puts you ahead you gas back up and then in the context of these beanstalk decks yeah you now your uh your lorian reveal draws four cards instead of three but that's kind of not the point and if you're focused on getting even more cards in that way you're fighting the wrong fight but if you uh you know you play your beanstalk and then you play your one mana leyline binding and draw a card and your free solitude and you draw a card well maybe that buys you enough time and cards that when you get to five now you do cast your lorian field and draw the extra card and now you're just out of control see i thought this was you discussing the idea of up the beanstalk as like a ter- like a two mana cantrip is largely in place to kind of shuffle your cards into a like state where you hit your fourth and fifth land drops more likely, and then therefore like up the beanstalk is acting as a Lorian revealed that you are 
land cycling less efficiently, but also get the cast of it on the backside for free. We're like, you know, you're, you're getting your 50% of a land off the first cantrip and then getting your three cards investment over the course of turns like four, five, seven. It kind of is all of that too. And uh, Lauren revealed just having good colors may be a crucial part of this equation. If if Up the Beanstalk was blue, then this might be an entirely different conversation in its own right. But for example, in Legacy, Lauren revealed uh, pitches to a card with the same uh, mana cost in Forcible, which conveniently does trigger Up the Beanstalk. But we'll come back to that in a little bit. Let's start at the beginning here with Standard, where Up the Beanstalk just as a fair card in your normal ramp deck or normal domain deck that has become pretty stock at this point and if you're playing any kind of a uh, mid-range deck or control deck it is terrifying staring down that other beanstalk knowing if the game gets to turn five or turn six not only do you have to beat all of the expensive cards which they're ramping towards up front like you have to beat the sunfall you have to beat whatever the follow-up finisher is but even if you do that they just have three more of those now because they've drawn four cards with this this one dinky two mana enchantment uh but also if you do want to go down that weirdo uh rabbit hole uh there is a way to do that now courtesy of this uh this weekend's magic online challenges yeah uh so this is the standard cascade deck that is Technically a Beanstalk deck. So this is, um, the Cascade effect is Invasion of Alara, which is the battle that, uh, it's got a backside that does some stuff, but the front side is basically you Cascade until you hit two cards that cost four or less, and you put one into your hand and you can cast the other. Um, and the general deck building principle of this is that you have Bramble Familiar, which is the uh, adventure from this set. That is the two mana, two, two creature, that taps for mana and bounces, but the other side is the the seven mana f- rip off seven cards, put an enchantment or creature from them into the, onto the battlefield. And the idea is that if you build a deck such that your only cards that cost four or less are four Bramble Familiars and one other card, because if you're always flipping two cards, you can never miss a Bramble Familiar if you just hit like your one other card. Um, like you just get to play your invasion and then rip off this seven mana card that puts, I don't know, n- name a seven drop in standard into play. Um, you can chain off into yet another invade or sorry, not invasion. Cause it's not an enchantment, but you, you can chain off into like, th- there's a few other things going on here. Like with um, what's the, the cemetery desecrator where you like chain off into whatever the text on the backside of invasion is and, you know, really get them. Um, but the, the swap that this deck makes, yeah, there's also stuff like the uh, the Black Virtue, the, the seven mana one, where it's Debtor's Knell on, I'm going to call it the front side, and then the Adventure Half is just uh, two mana, last gasp, you gain two life, which is pretty crucial to surviving against the, uh, the creature decks. But then also, once you're casting your seven mana half of Bramble Familiar, well, this is something you could familiar into, which if you make it to the next turn, which you might in part because of the, the two mana half, then you can start just accruing even more value over time. Yeah, and I guess one thing that's, um, like, this deck's also using Phyrexian Fleshgorger as another card in that slot of, like, this costs seven, but it's also a cheap play. And also, fun highlight, the, I know one of the abilities on the back half of Invasion of Alara is put an artifact from your hand onto the battlefield, so it's also yep. subsidizing that <laughs> fraction of it. Uh, just there, like, little there's, pieces. Um, there's also, the, the entire prototype mechanic is tailor-made for that kind of a... Uh, fake sticker price thing where i've seen rootwire amalgam in some of these lists um the whatever the one is that gains life a boulder something uh that one's made its way in there too like the there's actually an almost modern 
ish level of cards that don't have the mana cost that they say they do to, to set up this whole little package here. Big fan of four mirror shell crab. That's the mana leak. That's that's the one oh, that's yeah. uh, got its spot in my heart. But um, basically, this deck is that one slot for the one two drop is sometimes up the beanstalk, which represents like a fairly scary setup where like even if like you are playing a mid ranger control battle and they flip into uh, invasion of Alara and they flip into uh, you know their bramble familiar and it flips into a card that you actually answer like. What if the other thing they hit was up the beanstalk and now everything else in their deck cantrips and you're just like, not only like, okay, well, they did what their one thing and it was powerful and I have spent three of my cards and stabilized, which is like the usual mid-range versus ramp battle, but like the, their thing also came with the next thing. Like it, it's really hard to beat that. Yeah, in testing this deck the other day, I got to turn seven, turn eight, and my sequence was draw up the beanstalk, cast it, draw leyline binding, cast that draw invasion of alara which when i cast that draw a card so already i've got three cards out of this up the beanstalk then the invasion hits uh another it hits two bramble familiar so one goes to my hand i cast a seven mana half of the other one drawing another card that one hits atali which hits two more cards including something that triggers out the beanstalk so th that that two mana investment effectively drew me five cards and also created the setup that let me flood the board with 20 power worth of stuff like it, it just really snowballs out of control very quickly and on the surface that pivot to the one up the beanstalk as the one kind of a cascade mist that's on the house is pretty genius but then the next level maybe is realizing in the matchups where you're making that switch in the first place all you want to be doing in the early game is casting up the beanstalk and then if you have let's say four bramble familiar four beanstalk you're still, I think the math is around 80% to uh, hit at least one Bramble Familiar if you cast Invasion. Uh, so the odds there are pretty good. And sometimes, if you have time, just getting one Beastalk into play and drawing another one, that's fine. You take those. Um, so maybe the, the actual pivot there is just play four up the Beastalk and then against someone who's trying to interact with you on the stack, which is... Th that, that is the way you keep this deck in check, is that, yeah, if... If they get to resolve their invasion and cascade, that's terrifying. That is the best thing you can do in standard. If they have, you know, make disappear, Thalia or whatever, like if they can fight it on that axis, that's pretty scary. Um, but yeah, against any kind of control deck, for example, just play for other Beanstalk and get to work. Yeah, it it is interesting. I'm interested to see how this deck ends up developing. Um, it's very fun. I don't know. It, this kind of deck existing in standard, I think, is very fun and divergent. Um, well, like, for a couple of reasons. First of all, like, the deck is generally about, like, you have to put a five mana spell on the stack, and then it needs to resolve. Like, I think that that is something that has been missing from standard for a while, is this, this context of, like, for a long time in probably the, like, 2008, 2009 to, like, 2013 stretch... This exact idea of a deck existed where, like, you had a deck that had an overpowering endgame, like, dating back to, like, the first one that immediately comes to mind for me was the the Seismic Swans deck, where just, like, the mid-range decks were just like, what the heck is happening? I can't interact. Like, this is all just wrong. Like, what is going on? And, like, continuing to, like, Primeval Titan and stuff, where, like, a deck like this is actually something that opens up the metagame by existing because it's slower than the aggressive decks. It's disruptable. But, like, it shifts what the mid-range decks needs to do and provides a clear level above that. 
in a way that isn't just like, I don't know. It feels like the standard threats have like shifted up the curve just enough. We've, we had like, what was it? Like, I'm thinking like the dance of the man stacks, or even like you could call some of the fires decks this, but I'm thinking back to when it was just like, yeah, the, the opponent just played an Oko and then counter just fell and then you died. And like, that's obviously the worst case scenario, but we've had a lot of those same kind of things happen. I, I'm trying to remember what decks were trying to compete with like teamer adventures and like, uh, the the Sultai decks on the same level. And th- we just had this problem happen over and over where the threats were just so good and so fast that, like, you you couldn't do this. And it's very refreshing to see something like this actually happen and exist and appear to be relatively functional in the way you want it to be. Like, this deck won a challenge and then it lost the finals of the next challenge to Mono Red, which is exactly what you want this deck to be doing. For example, when Team Red was the best deck, what made that so crushingly good was the unbeatable endgame that it had was just kind of derivative of all of its cheap cards. So yeah, you would eventually cast an explosion for whatever their life total was using your 30-something mana. But then, yeah, you could also just uh, expand from their growth spiral on turn two or something. Or you would cast your reclamation on four and then eventually you would use all that mana some way. But that was a cheap enough play that you could do that and then figure it out. I kind of like that there's a deck like this now where yeah you're doing something incredibly big but you do have to get there and work for it in a way that a lot of these big end games and standard recently just you didn't really have to and so i guess after that era you had um this was actually the thing that i think first put cft stock on the map for me was the uh the genesis ultimatum endgame in that team of adventures deck right where like if everyone else is doing the gruel adventures thing and the mono green food thing then yeah casting genesis ultimatum for terror of the peaks and beanstalk giant like actually does go over the top in this in this really compelling way and then you had the whole like emergent ultimatum uh end game and standard which was this whole thing in itself so stuff like that has been around but never quite in the form like this whereas yeah i i'm just hoping and praying to survive and then i'm going to be lighting the world on fire but that that first part is easier said than done it's felt like for a lot of the big end games in standard in recent years you can actually just pretty easily survive and then that's not the hard part and that should be the hard part if stuff like this is possible yeah i do want to point out one other important thing about this deck which is that um another problem across this era has been that like Disdainful Stroke is in theory supposed to be a stopgap against a lot of the like, oh, my opponent is a bigger mid-range deck thing. But we've just had this chain of three cost cards that are game dominating between like, okay, well, it's like Fable. And like before that, you could just name like 8,000 other ones like Lovestruck Beast, Oko, or whatever. This standard format has actually like the three drops are good but very few of them are that kind of dominating like the best one is probably wedding announcement and even that is like fairly slow to reduce an advantage and doesn't really turn things over like you I, you know you could argue for like Rafine or Gix, but those are just like creatures and there's this very clear delineation of like oh my opponent's big spell is going to line up with my disdainful stroke unless they have dedicated a very specific chrome host seed shark to this exact problem um and i think that that makes the format generally better and easier to sort of peel back the layers and actually make a distinction between like what things are good against like larger macro archetypes i want to highlight like one other sort of interesting spot about this deck which is that like 
there's, you know, we, we talk about like these ways to go under and these ways to adapt to that. There's, there's also just like a very direct problem with it where like in a mid range match, uh, there's a five drop that beats your entire deck and you have to answer how do you deal with that? Uh, the, the deck is literally non-functional against an Atlas Nord. Like if you just go down the list of cards in the deck, there's none of them that work. You, you have to like assemble three virtues. I don't know. You end up going full limited mode of, yeah, I just cast my attracts as a 7-7 seven, seven with good stats and hope that that can connect three times. Or there are some creative solutions too. I've seen um, like the Kami War as a good thing to, it's an enchantment, uh, so you can uh, bramble elemental into it, but it because it's a saga, it doesn't technically ETB, so you can still kill Elishnorn with it the way that like everyone assumes at first well, Elishnorn works really well with and also against uh, Favor the Mirror Breaker. Turns out that's not the case. Um, but here that actually kind of works to your benefit. Yeah, yeah. This, I I think the, the general gist of this is that, like, not just this deck, but, like, a lot of the other stuff actually has me excited to see what happens in Standard. I, I won't keep you too long on this topic because, obviously, uh, deck submission for Worlds is in, like, I don't know, somewhere between one and 200 hours. So uh, you obviously... No, have... no, absolutely not. Don't say that. Uh, but okay, you're it right. is in the you're future. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I, 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 am, I am excited when I'm finally uh, unmuzzled and also know, was I in on the joke for Standard this time around to talk about Standard? Because preparing for it has actually been this, this real trip. Um, but this is one of the, the public morsels of information that c- can get people talking uh, ahead of next week. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about uh, Pioneer, which is which is probably the format with the least beans. Yes, although uh, I think there are lots of places to put your beans there as well. So one of them would be the five color Bring to Light deck, which uh, Lucas Hone uh, pioneered for the last Pioneer Pro Tour, uh, and which has become one of these good uh, mid range options. Although now that stock Ragdoll's mid range has died down, I've seen a lot less of this deck uh, as well, and I don't think that's any coincidence. Yeah, I mean, I never liked that deck to begin with. So, like, if you can't even, like, use the excuse that you're good against Rakdos to say that you're playing it, when I'm not even sure that was entirely true, uh, yeah, that's definitely understanding. Like, I, I get that completely. Um, I There's the obvious, like, there's just Beanstalks in the Enigmatic Incarnation decks a lot of the time now, which is, like, not really worth talking about as an addition. It's just, like, this is, this is a good color two-mana enchantment that draws a card and probably I don't know maybe draws a card later and is good with the Orion yeah I mean in the the brings light deck for a second one issue that I know you had with that deck upon seeing it for the first time is it felt like you could actually run out of cards that did stuff so against a, a blue eye control deck for example okay you you bring to light for your Valky that gets countered or something or it gets dealt with somehow what's the next thing that you find that actually does anything that they care about um and I, I feel like having more beanstalks it leans into that issue in the sense of yeah you'll draw a bunch of cards but you'll float out super easily and you'll draw some fables but then these are the worst fables of all time still because there's nothing good to copy and then you rummage away your dead cards and you draw even more dead cards and yeah if they they deal with your your one five drop that does a thing well what what is the thing that you do next and beanstalk doesn't fix that issue and almost highlights it in a weird way it makes me wonder if there's a build off the deck that can be a Yorion deck instead, um, where you have maybe more stuff higher up the curve, and then you get the, to unlock that amazing synergy uh, with Beanstalk. Um, but then you're drawing your Brink Lights less often, and often that feels like the only card in the deck that actually does anything. So not sure how you fudge all of those numbers. 
in the inclination deck, it does actually present this interesting problem, I think, because on the one hand, this feels like the perfect home for it, right? On the other hand, what I realized when looking at the deck recently was you effectively are the weirdest Boros deck of all time. So you have to be in Boros for Chain to the Rocks and then Leyline Binding and, and most of the creatures you want to find are white. And then uh, you have a bunch of your red cards. So that part of the deck is kind of locked in. But then you can just spin the color wheel however you want. So you can be, for example, a heavy blue with like Omen of the Sea and then your a bunch of counter spells on the sideboard and some more blue cards. Um, or you can go for the, the green focus with... Uh, Path of the World Tree is an option I've seen showing up recently. And then Nylea's Presence was a default, but that, that one was always kind of weird in the sense of, yeah, it gives you all five colors for binding, but you didn't really need green until you decided to splash Nylea's Presence. And at that point, you do need green. So you're, it's, it's the old uh, splashing birds of paradise issue. And so it made me wonder, what if you just didn't do that, treated green as a splash, and just be in effectively solid Jeskai? Um, with you know you'll have green at some point by four for incarnation and maybe there's like two incarnation bullets in your deck that cost black mana but eh, you'll, you'll figure that out at some point i my issue with that is that looking down the list of creatures the majority of the ones i would like to draw and cast are relatively heavy green um like if i am not doing my incarnation thing i'm like okay well i would like to draw and cast elder gargaroth and i will probably accidentally have a titan of industry and if i am splashing green and have like five green green and can't cast this card i'm going to be sad and then from there like what if i just played the next best seven and i'm, I'm not sure it's nearly as good yeah the, the those other choices will be downstream of that so yeah maybe your sevens now are asian of treachery and attractor and it's not the the triple green one for example or yeah maybe elder gargoth is out and then maybe you still have to play tolsmir but i i really hate tolsmir so hopefully we can work that one out at some point but that is the main sticking point. I do think that Beanstalk kind of helps a deck when it's already doing its thing. So I'm not losing a lot with Incarnation if I'm casting my five drops and I'm, I'm drawing extra cards off those, or if I'm not. I'm losing because I'm missing my third land drop or I'm not finding my, my fires or my Incarnation. I'm not finding my sideboard cards maybe in the matchups where those are really important and time sensitive. Um, if it's, you know... If this is a matchup where that one Arkham of Amira is going to be lights out, I want to be able to dig for that as, as soon as I can, as fast as I can. And in terms of helping those weak spots, a card like Omen of the Sea or Bitter Reunion or whatever the other candidates are, I think are a lot more compelling than at the Beanstalk. Having said that, Beanstalk has overperformed in basically every shell that I've witnessed it in. And I, I have no reason to think this would be the exception to that rule, especially when you have probably a main deck Yorion and a cyborg Yorion. So yeah, I will try the Beanstalk list and, and uh, see where it takes me. Yeah, I mean, I my initial impression would be that up the Beanstalk is secondary to Path uh, to the World Tree, just like the card that always hits your land. And you are just kind of stumbling into the fact that like, well, my first enchantment is green. I would kind of like my second enchantment to also be green. One other unexpected home I've seen for it is actually the, the Lotus Field deck, uh, which I know Patrick Wu has experimented with this light black, uh, green splash. This requires a bit of a heavier green splash, but if you can make that work, then when you look at the deck, you, you realize there are more fake five drops there than you ever expected. So, for example, Discontinuity. Uh, cast for two mana, triggers your up the beanstalk, and that trigger goes on top of the stack so it doesn't get 
uh, gobbled up by the turn ending, so you still get the value there. Uh, Doomscar, if you're foretelling that one, well, that's a five drop that you're paying three for. I guess you're amortizing the five, but either way, you're drawing a card. I guess at the point where you're casting to fairy, you're already drawing cards, so that's that's probably excessive. But um, like March of Otherworldly Light as well, you can overpay for that or underpay, but pitch some of these other white cards that you've just drawn with your other beanstalk. So there, maybe that's uh, something you can look at too. I, there are just like some general issues with like these somewhat more fair Lotus Field decks and like multiple colors where like you can dent your mana colors down and then when you try to cast multiple spells on like turn four where everything kind of falls apart. But obviously that's not like the, the success case for the deck, but it is a case that comes up a decent amount. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think this fundamentally is solving any of the problems that uh, have kind of like the, this, you know, Azorius um, Lotus Field deck rose to prominence because it's just got this huge end game. I don't, I don't think up the beanstalk fundamentally solves the reasons why it sort of failed, which is that it's a lot of end game and kind of weaker on the early side. Yes. And I already really object to stuff like the finale of revelation in the previous stock list and all this other stuff, which is great when you already have your unbeatable end game in place and pretty bad before then. And uh, beanstalk, is a form of smoothing on two or something but yeah I, I see the issue there on that note uh this is yet another card that makes me want to dust off my elder deep fiends and probably will also be another reminder of why they've been gathering dust this whole time i'm now just looking at this azorius list and thinking about the fact that you draw a card when you cast shark typhoon with enough beanstalk and play which th- that's the sort <laughs> like i do. know that this is bad i'm not going to do it um, the other thing I'm, I kind of want to highlight that I've noticed across a lot of Pioneer lists the last week or two is just, and not even just Pioneer, I think it's like even splashing into Modern a bit, is just the resurgence in Dragonlord Dromoka as a creature. I don't have yeah. a good reason besides just like, like the card is very, like it won a Vintage Championship because it does what it does very well. Uh, it's just like a card that I kind of assumed its time had passed, but I'm happy to see again. That, that might just be Brian Kelly won a Vintage Championship because Brian Kelly does what he does uh, very well. But in in Pioneer specifically, I know this was one of the Lotus Field pieces of technology uh, for the, the combo-focused deck, that it was a good pivot against aggro, but also one of the best cards you could have against specifically Spirits, but also just Blue decks in general, where the game would drag on to a point where, yeah, you could lead with Dramoka as a thing which demanded a very specific answer and if they didn't have that well then yeah you would use the rest of your mana cast your hidden strings and then just combo off uh without a care in the world from there and then in modern um i know it's creeping into some amulet sideboards again just with this murktide resurgence and just various different buffo type of control decks that happens to be great against but yeah always nice to see that one uh popping up again i i do appreciate that you completely uh ignored my elder Fiend comment because I, yeah i think even acknowledging it would encourage <laughs> me more than it should so yeah we, we can move swiftly on from that no I, I you know i was uh i was digging through some uh podcast archives today and i came across an old uh the uh, the ben whites before he was hashtag waltzy staff uh, had a podcast allied strategies and uh some of the content in there is just him spending years raving about different ways to like knight of the reliquary up a sanctum of ugin to chain off an elder deep fiend and it always ends the same way with him being like yeah i spent like three days testing this for a pro tour and it it didn't end up well so we didn't end up playing it so i'm you know just shortcutting to the end of it yeah i I liked uh I, i think the the best example of that i saw was someone was 
uh, building a deck with Urza, where you would cast Urza and then immediately use the mana on the opponent's turn to emerge Elder Deep Fiend, sacrificing the Urza. And one of the comments was, wait, so you're pairing Urza with this unplayable card that you're using to then sacrifice the playable card that is the whole reason this deck functions in the first place. And when you put it like that, sure, it sounds bad, but but why would you? Yeah, yeah. Um, on the subject of sacrificing creatures, I do kind of want to loop back to a deck that we've highlighted a couple times, which is um, the, like, hybrid Kinnon combo Luka deck that's, like, a Rona loop deck, but also a Luka Atraxa deck. Um, and I, I kind of want to, like, talk about something that I feel like has been happening a lot in Pioneer and Modern the last couple weeks, which is people winning with decks, but they're just a bad version of, like, a Tier 1 strategy. So I played a bit with this deck, and my conclusion that was that, like, it's fine, but it's a it's an atrocious version of Mono Green. Like, imagine a Mono Green where, like, your old growth troll is a 1-3 instead of a 4-4. Four, four. Like, that's kind of the vibes you get from this deck. And I think that there's some of that happening in Modern 2, where I... I tricked myself into playing the Lawness deck, and it was just like, none of these cards are Yawgmoth. Why are they in my deck? I don't know what is siphoning people back into these archetypes as opposed to the known ones. Like, on one hand, these formats are definitely in, like, a state of flux where, like, Modern is still like, oh, we've just had, like, Lord of the Rings into Preordain Unban into, you know, the release of an Eldraine set that has a decent number of playables, and Pioneer has this set. And, like, there's got to be, like, some guardrail to, like, tell yourself, like, okay, this we should probably take a break on this one or like just like maybe like a palette cleanser of like you're allowed to play two leagues with a bad deck and then you have to play another league with mono green to remind yourself of what you can actually do yeah this this rona luca deck is adorable first of all and reaffirms my stance that luca is one of the coolest planeswalker designs of all time even if it was very briefly uh had this reign of terror in standard it's just I love the way that it gets you to just think about what to do with it, and that can lead you in the direction of, I play zero creatures and I'm polymorphing my shark typhoon into my whatever, or it can lead you down the road of, yeah, I play 30 creatures in my deck, but with a very specific curve so that I know that when I hit this thing that enhances my other creatures, like it's going to work out that way. I don't know, just great card, would love to see... Stuff in that space, I guess, there's a limit to how far you can really take it, but maybe just as a one-off, uh, it, it's really cool. Yeah, I I appreciate these kinds of designs where it is, like, they, a cool effect has been created, and it's a design space that is very hard to make, like, you know, the, we see this with, like, the, the sheet in Eldraine, where it's like, okay, so this set has doubling season and parallel lives, and, like, another card that says double, and it's like it'd be really hard to like go through a year of products and be like, we've got like six different Lucas. And I, I really like that about this card. I think is the thing I appreciate the most is like, it is aggressively unique. Same with any you know, other card, another card from this deck that has that same kind of vibe is Tyvar. Like the, the activated ability haste combined with like everything else. That card is just like really weird and awesome when it works, but also I'm not sure it ever like really works, but it, it, when it works, it's awesome. Yeah. I know uh, Ryan Sachs had a thread asking, for Planeswalker suggestions for his build-around cube, which is going to be featured at KubeCon. And uh, I think by far the most popular answer in there was Typhon. Like, it just does a bunch of cool stuff and then can just be decent as a fair card if you, you know, you turn one elf into turn two Tyva and then you're ramping into a five drop on three. That's great. But then also, if you're going uh, off the chain with, uh, you know, mill myself for 20 and then buy back my Rona with haste, like that, that's cool too. 
speaking of Rona, quickly, did you see the the latest uh, Musasabi creation? Um, was this the deck that had the apple in it, and it kind of broke me as to why the apple is the kill condition? It's it's yeah, the I Just mean, Guy Ascendancy deck, right? It, it was, yeah. The, the apple uh, is kind of like the afterthought. Is yeah, you you can replace that with the Etherflux Reservoir or whatever your favorite random combo win condition is and get the same outcome. But the the, the key part there, I think, was actually the Agatha Soul Cauldron, uh, which in this deck, it can turn your thing into a Rona or into uh, Emery. And then the abilities on those really matter when combined with either the Retraction Helix, uh, Mox Amma stuff, or with just Dress Guy Sentency itself. So uh, you can, you know, play your Falaji Archaeologist, mill over your Emery, use Cauldron to turn that into an Emery, and then now you suddenly have Wait. Lethal Out of Nowhere with your Dress Guy Sentency. There's just a lot of cool stuff Hold uh, in that space. And then, yeah. I, I think you skipped a step where Falaji Archivist puts a plus one plus one counter on itself. No need for the Cauldron to do any work. You can just exile no, and put your I counter mean, elsewhere and you have two Emerys. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing the Mirror, you can steal their Emery and then just play your Cauldron and, uh, and go off. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I. It's adorable. Again, I I sort of classify the Just Guy Ascendancy deck under the like bad mono green header. Um, but like, I I'm very wary of being aggressive with that header. But like the the it is so obvious once you start playing these decks. Though I will give a lot of these decks a bit of credit in the sense that like, um, unlike the usual form of this deck where like you have to take. I'm thinking of the non-functional Acerorak deck that doesn't work because Gwena doesn't work with Kinnon or whatever <laughs> um, yes. still. But, like, the amount of clicks where you have to, like, click your Acerorak and put it into your hand, then click the dungeon, then click the room. And then now, now this deck, like, you just kind of, like, cast some spells and then, like, the reservoir comes out of your sideboard and they die. Like, there is no real clock or dexterity issue with this deck. Um, the kill condition is, like, really clean. In large part, just because Karn is just so blatantly functional in the deck. Yeah, it's possible that Grenadec would be non-functional for other reasons, even if your cards did what they say on the text box. But uh, we will never find out, at least on Modo, I suppose, because you just can't test it there. So, yeah, all the decks in that space, whether it's the Grenadec or the five different Rona decks, these are the kind of decks which, I guess make me sympathetic to the people who just want uh, mono green or specifically Khan banned out of existence so stuff below it uh, that's strictly worse kind of has more room to breathe. In reality, I think that if it's not Khan out of mono green, it's going to be something else keeping these down um, and there's always going to be a best deck and that best deck is going to be good against most random stuff because that's just what best decks do. But I, I at least say where they're coming from. It does also just give me more uh, optimism about Pioneer as a format because it's it's part of that um, like 2017, 2018 era modern quality where, yeah, there are the best decks. And then beneath those, there are 15 really cool decks, which when I see them, the first thing I want to do is just rent them on Modo and fire up a league. Uh, and then maybe I drop from the league at 1-2 and return the deck instantly, but they, they hook me in and, and that's part of the charm. So I think that there's a lot of cool stuff going on but now that we're not in Pioneer season, and I guess we are in Pioneer RC season, but modern RCQ seasons, so there's like a weird disjoint there. But uh, until those RCs come around in a few weeks or a few months, then yeah, uh, there's just no real reason to, to pay attention for now. Yeah, well, I on the subject of not paying attention to Pioneer, I do want to ask you the question of, do you know what Samet Vizier of Naktamun does? 
because this was the one uh, of the deck that caught my eye from this week's results. Is this the Aftermath one? It is. Okay, I'm going to say it's three mana. I assume it has haste itself. And then it's something like if a creature that dealt damage came into play this turn, you draw a card? Yep, that is it. So uh, there was a, a haste theme deck in the top eight of one of the challenges. That's It's really just a riff on the, like, Atarka Red list, but it's got, like, a bunch of really, like, interesting cards. Uh, like, Questing Druid has been a pickup for it. Um, it features Samet. Uh, it features Witchstalker Frenzy, which is the three and a red deal five that has affinity for creatures that attacked this turn. I thought that card was really cool, so... Um, I just wanted to highlight that that deck existed. Uh, I don't think, like, we go through this cycle with the Tarka Red every, what, seven weeks? But I, I uh, this list had a lot more charm than the usual ones for me. Speaking of uh, stuff like that, it looks like Bard Class got a new toy again. Well, this deck has that card. Ruby Daring Tracker. I, I told you not to look at the image on the Discord. What Did you break the rules? <laughs> I, I did, and now I'm going to get punished uh, as a result. So, yeah, Ruby, the... <laughs> In theory, the gold uncommon signpost or payoff in Limited. In reality, this is just the new form of copium for, for bar class perverts everywhere. This is red-green for a 1-2 haste. Uh, when it attacks, while you control a creature with power 4 or more, it gets plus 2, plus 2. So attacks as a 3-4 there. And then taps to add red or green. So between that and uh, Hajar from the tail end of last year, and now this Samur and a bunch of other stuff... The, 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 like, fake fair beatdown plan from the Bard Class deck is getting shockingly close to actually existing. Still don't know if it does actually exist, but, like, it's at least almost in the conversation. Well, this card also, like, um, the fact that it's, like, a virtual Mox... I, like, okay, I don't want to call it Mox Opal, but it's a Bard Class Mox Opal. Uh, where, <laughs> it like, sure is. You, you had this problem previously, right, where you had, like, okay, well, I've ultimate... well. It's not even the ultimate. I have advanced my bard class to the casting free spells phase. But, like, there's only so many cards that cost green-red that you can put in your deck. And, like, so many duplicates of those. But this sort of, like, springboards you where you are casting a card that costs green-red. And then it lets you free roll a card that costs one green-red. And suddenly your deck is about the same, but, like, it sounds cooler. Yes. Uh, so it, it looks like the Pioneer segment here has fully devolved into nonsense. So sort of to avoid that collapsing entirely, let's move on to uh, something else. And I guess we will skip over Modern for the time being, jump over to Legacy, where uh, Other Beanstalk is at least making a very solid first impression there. And that that class of deck that you want to put Beanstalk in, whether or not it actually includes Beanstalk, is having a pretty good few weeks for itself. Yeah, it was... It- one, I forget if it was, was it McWinsauce winning the super or challenge with it? Uh, or was that top, yes. top four? I'm uh, sorry. This was... Yes, uh, top four of the of the super. He he also having a very good few weeks for himself. But yeah, this is uh, Yorion Beanstalk Control featuring uh, alleged legacy staple Leyline Beanding. Yeah, this deck is just a modern deck, but it's in legacy. Like, that, that's just all it is. Like... Imagine, like, the modernist four-color deck, but with legacy cards. That's that's all it is. Like, there's four one-rings. That, like, that's the deck yeah. giveaway. I- imagine that deck got to play Uro, and also your Force Negation triggered your Beanstalk and could hit any spell. And that's, that's basically where we are uh, with uh, this deck here. Uh, also, very cute stuff involving Terminus, where that does technically trigger Beanstalk, but then also 
if you can trigger your beanstalk on the opponent's turn then you have this instant speed draw to terminus so i've seen a lot of like mystic fetch my mystic sanctuary with my lauren revealed sanctuary back my terminus and then on your turn cast my leyline binding trigger my beanstalk miracle my terminus sequences so all of Ooh. that is uh, a lot of fun um we also have fourth eolingus which is a pretty messed up card in any deck that can cast it really and here it's it's not so much the cast it on turn two trigger dragon's mage channeler and then i have the monarch uh, on turn two and it's also not the uh imprint one of them on my, on my chrome marks to cast the other one for two on turn two and just hope that's good enough this is a you know my control deck needs to finish the game at some point and what what happens if they surgically extract my Uro or something? Well, we'll just put this card in my deck, which, yeah, if I have six mana, it will end the game. And also, when I have consistent access to those Mystic Sanctuaries, that card being an instant or sorcery does actually go a very long way. Oh, and I guess also it can trick my Beanstalk, just if I needed to. Yeah, I, I'm actually convinced that the Monarch text on fourth Aerolingus is actually a drawback. Um, my experience with casting this card is that um, usually the cases of this card being in play are you cast it and then they die. So the Monarch never happens. Or you cast it for a small number and then attack and you're supposed to kill them the next turn. But like the Monarch gives them an extra Bowmaster trigger and suddenly like you might actually lose a token and like they could stabilize because of it. Or like you can't cast it for two or three because like you can't attack or pressure anything. Otherwise like the Monarch had like I actually think that that text is most of the time bad on the card yeah uh so beyond that you have the usual kind of padding that you need for any yorion deck yorion here uh we, we do have solitude as another removal spell which triggers beanstalk pitch it to any of solitude force of will force negation and then as always yorion is just this amazing end game that you kind of graft into your deck at relatively low cost um for the i guess the the beanstalk one ring mirrors which are now going to be omnipresent as well and then you, you have your usual suite of brainstorm and ponder source of plowshares kind of all of the the good legacy staples and the one ring as this uh control centerpiece which in the past maybe this would have been something like your jace the mind sculptor or some other random planeswalker here the idea basically is just yeah i'll cast this and i have so many pitch cards and so many good just cheap interactive pieces that even though the ring itself doesn't directly interact, it's going to put the game away, even if it takes a bunch of turns to cast that. And this is, yeah, this is also a very funny way to set up your terminus, where you cast your ring, you draw a card, the next turn you you ponder, you see your terminus there, you just activate the ring on your opponent's turn and get to milk all the terminus uh, on demand. So uh, a, a great uh, few weeks for terminus enjoyers. And the one ring has also caused this resurgence in Uro, which feels like this weird afterthought in these decks after... You go back, you know, two years, the early stages of COVID, this was a card which was as oppressive in Legacy as it was in basically every other format uh, at, at the core of these Snowco decks and these kind of blue-green base control decks. And here it's as good as it's, as it's ever been, thanks to how good it is with Ring, among other things. And yet it also feels like, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of there. Like you don't even, it's not even like the top four or five most offensive cards in this deck anymore. Yeah, I think it is more charming when it, like, the card is so ever-present in the games that it is participating in that when it becomes a part of every format, it rapidly loses the charm. But when it's kind of nestled away in this, like, little corner, it's sort of fine as an endgame and not, like, too much worse than the other stuff. But also, like, the I think that it's just, like, really important in this deck that features, like, we have now added four colorless cards and, like, 
we're trying to subsidize, like, there's Force of Vigor, Endurance, and Force of Will in this deck with, like, how many blue and green cards? Just, like, a card with good colors. Pretty important. I, I think also having this finisher that functions from the graveyard is just really good against the base blue-black decks in particular, where if, if you're getting Force of Will and Thought Seize or Griefed multiple times or whatever, then having this thing which eventually will come back, you just need to survive that long, that's an easier uh, checkpoint to get to than I need to survive and then also draw and resolve my finisher. Just having Uro kind of parked there uh, makes the rest of it easier to do. I do have some skepticism about like the general strategies of this deck in a world where you can play Hull Breacher, but more so than Bowmasters. Just like I'm looking at the deck that Kahara works one with, which is, you know, a Zenith variant that just has two Leovold, the Hull Breacher, and four Bowmasters, and like, oh, that's that's a bad matchup. <laughs> yeah, it is it's kind of hard in Legacy specifically to pair those with an actual wheel effect. Because in Vintage, you have your one time twister that you can search for. Or I guess if you're doing the LED Echo Veil stuff, then that qualifies too. But it's kind of hard to wombo combo people with these cards. But if they're just doing that for you with their own rings and brainstorms and stuff, then yeah, just lean hard into all of those effects. And, you know, if you layer enough of them on top of each other, then it kind of takes care of itself. The other thing is that, like, if your opponent's hand just has, like, a ponder and a brainstorm, did you really need them to get wields? Like, it's fine. They just discarded two cards anyways. Yeah, I mean, Leovold having a new lease on life as, I guess, like a Zenith target as well in these Green Star Zenith decks, but also in the world of Delighted Halfling, that was one of the cards that people were really keen to curve their turn one Halfling into. The Halflings themselves have fallen by the wayside in a lot of these decks, but if you're doing that kind of thing, then Leovold is still a very appealing piece of that puzzle. And also yeah, has those uh, good colors for all of your pitch cards, including the green ones and the blue ones and so on. Yeah, I... It feels like, you know, it's a bit of whiplash and legacy from, like, the... I'm not certain the blue decks are actually good prior to Bowmaster to, like, I'm not certain the non-blue decks can actually compete with Bowmaster, <laughs> but we're seeing a decent diversity across those two spreads. Well, well, this is uh, the, the thing, is that uh, when people post those charts of these are the, the top 10 most popular cards in Legacy over the past month or whatever, I, I think those are generally quite misleading because those are not independent of each other, right? So if the blue-black shadow deck, for example, is 20% uh, of any Legacy tournament, then yeah, all of the cards that show up in that deck, most of those are going to be in the top 10, assuming they have any kind of purchase outside of that. But when you see, okay, Bowmasters is in... 40% of legacy decks and uh, 22 out of the top 32 decks in this showcase have Bowmasters. Okay, yeah, the card is everywhere. But to me, the takeaway is, even given that, even after the first good form of pushback to this whole Brainstorm, Ponder class of cards, th this is the, the best version of that effect that we've ever seen. Despite that, those cards are joining it or above it in terms of what cards are most popular. And the best Bowmaster decks are the ones that also have Brainstorm and Ponder and so on to find and defend their own Bowmasters. So to me, like the, the whole uh, dialogue recently of, oh, does Bowmaster need to be banned? Is it throttling diversity? No, it's highlighting the, the basic structural issue with the format that has existed for 20 years and is part of why you people keep playing Legacy in the first place. Bowmaster's not the issue here. Let's not frame it for crimes it didn't commit. Yeah, yeah. It's like this is a cheap card that you are allowed to put in your deck at low cost when you also surround it with the cards that are like so far out of reason that we're 
debating whether re-adding Preordain to the next biggest format was a problem, let alone these other two cards. Yes, it has always been the case that this core of blue cheap cards, that shell will be a better home for any new generically strong cheap card that gets printed almost no matter what it is this is true of of oko and uro it's true of you know uh, ragavan uh before that was banned and it's going to be true of the next thing that comes along as well like that that is the issue here uh one of many issues uh, the whatever the new thing is uh, maybe it is an issue too but it's not the only issue it, it, if anything it's just highlighting the ones that do exist there was some talk of the the, the mono black helm deck from a few weeks ago, which I was kind of uh, poo pooing. I think you were a little bit higher on it, and now a Lena and Mina version of that deck, based around Beseech the Mirror, has actually done uh, very well recently, including uh, fellow podcast pundit uh, Dave Shields. I think just picking it up effectively out of nowhere just to see what the fuss was about and uh, blearily stumbling his way to a a challenge win. Yeah, uh, the upgrade where you just don't have to play more than one Helm anymore is pretty big. Um, I also appreciate this deck for, like, um, we see we see this problem a lot in Legacy, where there is this, like, turn one kill hype cycle, where I don't actually, like, I guess technically, like, all the Echo decks are maybe a little better than Belcher has ever been, and, like, the Besieged Storm decks, are, I guess, are a little better than Belcher has been, but, like, you still just have the same fundamental problem of, like, we have added force of negation to force of will. Like, what is, what's your plan here? Like, you're going to turn one kill, what percentage of the metagame? Like, what, where, where are you going with this? And, like, even then, what percentage of, like, those decks just can, like, chalice zero you? And this is the deck that says, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, sometimes I'll turn one kill them, but I'm not, like, out here looking to get ESG Veil of Summered on turn one. Um, like, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, we'll bring that up next week when Jarvis is on, I guess. Yeah, this is a Force of Will, Force Negation format. One thing that uh, you actually pointed out, though, was a lot of the the slower uh, Force of Will, Force Negation decks are actually pretty bad against the combo decks that those cards are meant to be the guardrails uh, against. So, you know, the uh, the older kind of uh, Zenith Blue decks or the Jeskai decks and so on, actually not that great to start with against something like Reanimator, where... Yeah, if they just shove, often you won't have the thing. But even if you, you know, you, you mulligan to six and your hand is like, it's whatever, but it has a force of will. Well, yeah, they're a deck with eight discard spells and a, a ton of redundancy on their reanimation. And th- the first force of will is not going to be good enough, especially if you're doing basically nothing in the meantime. Um, so if you have a way to fill the other half of that, then great. But the whole conceit of, eh, I've got some pitch cards or something, what, what's the worst that could happen? There are actually a lot of answers to that question uh, in pretty scary ways right now. Yeah, but I, I think a lot of the decks that people move to with Beseech first aren't getting that redundancy. There's not, like, this spot where, like, like even with some of the wheel decks, you would, like, wheel once and then be able to refire again. I, I don't see that in most of the Breach, or in most of the Beseech decks, that aren't this one that is also like, okay, well, I'm just, like, gonna Kim you or, like, play Dothy Voidwalker or whatever. Like, I'm just gonna do my other thing and, like, let you worry about what you're, like, if you have the Force of Will, like, I'm not completely colded. The the Beseech decks that are, like, all in on Beseech are, it, it feels like they're even more all in than traditional Storm, like, which is, like, a pretty balanced deck. Like, they, they shove so much harder because they have to lean on, you know, Chrome Mox, but also, like, uh, you know, additional zeros, it feels like. 
Yeah, if you uh, you dark ritual out your besiege and you sacrifice your zero to bargain and that gets forced to build, that actually is very hard to recover from. So those ones do feel more kind of all in on their one thing. Um, so I think besiege is the ceiling is incredibly high, and this is these are such early days. You're going to see a wider range of besiege storm decks or these kind of a. Uh, beseech stompy decks for lack of a better word and i think the card is is very good and here to stay but it does set you up with these weaknesses that some of the other kind of a uh, combo payoffs are more familiar with can can fight through more easily yeah yeah it, just like i don't know don't build a flashy deck in legacy just build a good deck yes there is a wide array of uh, flashy Beanstalk decks and other decks as well on display in Modern right now. So let's uh, dive into that. And maybe the best starting point is with the, the Beanstalk deck that won the obscenely large uh, qualifier <laughs> on Magic Online. And I think that might be a, a good talking point to get into real quick is uh, that we have these online RCQs, which I think this one was 470 people or something like that. And the top... I'm not sure what if it's top four or top eight. I think it was actually top four. But either way, the the ratio of people in the tournament to invites earned is pretty farcical for these. And these are invites to the RC, not to the actual PT itself, just for the RC. And so it is jarring when you go on Twitter and you see all these posts of, yeah, I won my local 28-person RCQ. I'm going to Denver at Fire Shoes. And then it's, okay, you, you, you went... Uh, 3-0 in the Swiss and you double drew in and then I don't know you you beat the same guy in the top eight and then had a good matchup in top four and the, the guy in the finals didn't even want the invite so you got to split it's like okay how, how much did we really accomplish here and then you look at this uh 10 person this 10 round online event a lot more than 10 people where like you can miss with bad breakers at x1 and then you get in and you you lose your quarterfinal round and you wonder what you did with your life yeah, I mean, I will say in the credit of the Magic Online events, they are probably not for 475 players, but they at least offer, like, a reasonable prize for, like, a probably smaller player base, whereas, like, you hear about these RCQs where it's like, yeah, someone, like, went 1-1-1 one, one, one in the Swiss and then won an invite, and it's like, what did second place get? It's like, um, two of the, like, Jace Chandra intro packs... And it's like, okay. They uh, they, they won the right to keep playing more RCQs just like this next weekend. Um, or you could just be in Canada and have it all, but uh, scoreboard, I suppose. Um, I, I think the, the thing that gets me there, though, is I would almost feel less insulted by that, that ratio if the events just didn't have that as a prize. If it was just, okay, here is a really big online event that's going to draw a lot of competition and we're going to pad the pricing with a bunch of i don't know like exclusive moto avatars or tickets or you know your name is going to be on the moto splash page as the winner of this event or something uh give me more itchy and scratchy money is what i'm saying whereas if it's the same invite which would be trivially easy in any other medium and that's the main thing i win it just i don't know that, that almost feels like a distraction from what it should be and Back in the days where online PTQs were the main ways that, especially people in these kind of less uh, well-served magic markets could break through to the Pro Tour, and then you had the, the Tommy Ashton's of the world who this was almost their kind of a, you know, quarterly stimulus or whatever. This was how they, they would get back on the train. Um, or, 
you know, when I, I won back-to-back online PTQs at the start of last year, that was like, oh, wow, I really have my foot in the door of the highest level of play now. Whereas this is just, yeah, you get to go to your RC like everyone else does. And I had to win an event which was honestly maybe bigger and harder than the RC, depending on where it is to actually do that. Like it just doesn't, the, the vibe is all off. And it used to be that, you know, if you you saw that your friend was X1 in the online PTQ, they, they'd made it into top eight, you would be you would be following that event however you could from wherever you were because this was a real cause of excitement. And if someone won, it was a great cause of celebration. And now it's, you're happy for them, but they don't even seem that happy about it most of the time. It's almost a relief that they don't have to play RCQs anymore instead. You know, they, they take their eight leaderboard points and move on with their life. Yeah, I mean, I... I was going to say, give me more itchy and scratchy money. Like, is, or maybe we that, like, is the podcast clout circuit the itchy and scratchy funds that you are talking about? Or I guess the Fire Shoes retweet is a form of itchy and scratchy money in its own right. I don't know what the inflation is like on that, but uh, I guess just uh, hope for the best. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the, you know, the, the, f- I don't want to relitigate the debate from like 2020 and 2021 about like the fungibility of uh, e cloud. Oh no! But <laughs> you know, it's it's different these days. It doesn't hit the same. Um, yes, but you uh, did make a mention of a very large tournament. Um, but you didn't mention that it was a very large deck winning the tournament. Yes, uh, seventy five cards. In fact, uh, this was a four color beanstalk deck with. Basically, every card you might want to play in four color, and now we just have room for all of it, I suppose. Yeah, it's just all four ofs, one Elishnorn, and lands. Uh, I The exact number of lands I, I might take a little issue with. I think 26 is probably a, a little aggressive, it's, even if you start counting, like, Delighted Halfling as a land. It's almost the same number of lands you would have in your 60-card version. Like, two or three more, but then... If the extra 15 cards are, let's say, two lands and 13 spells, that's going to throw off a number somewhere, even if some of those spells are beanstalks, and so you're drawing more cards, and some of those cards, they, they could be more beanstalks, they could be more lands. Like, I, I don't know what the, the actual ratio should be there. Yeah, I mean, you can always fix it in post by boarding up the third and fourth Boseju in any matchup. It's fine. Uh, I, I guess so, yeah. So... Yeah, I think this is. I would not recommend, even given my uh, my vintage, I would not recommend playing seventy five cards there or close to seventy five cards. But it's more of a proof of concept that something like this can do very well. And if you look at the the reasoning that the winner gave for why this why this many and and why these cards in particular, you you can kind of uh, tease out what had to happen to lead to that success. And this is maybe coming off of what we spoke about last week, where. You know, if, yeah, someone wins a tournament with a deck and they're saying that deck is broken, depending on what the deck is, you can kind of reverse engineer what their draws must have been like or what the matchups must have been like to lead them in that way. And so uh, the, this player was talking about how, yeah, once you have Beanstalk in your deck, you're seeing like a third of your deck in the early turns. And if you're playing a Beanstalk Mirror, then actual decking or running out of threats is a serious concern. And so... Uh, you could fudge out in other ways with a main deck endurance or, or two or something like that. But uh, just having a bigger deck in a world where that's a real concern, like that does actually kind of do what you needed to do. That said, it feels like that is a very good problem to have because, yeah, if people are fighting you on those terms, if it's the kind of mid-range slugfest where Beanstalk is going to be great and you're probably good on the fundamentals and your only risk is just running out of stuff uh, in your deck, 
then yeah, you, you can fix that this way. But if you play against Tron, for example, it's like, I, I promise you, decking is not going to be a concern. There are bigger issues that you're going to have to deal with. Or the the Twiddlestorm deck that's kind of all over the, the prelims recently, where this was almost tailor-made post Lord of the Rings to beat up on four color because yeah they can draw 12 cards and none of them do anything because that's just not what your deck is about um so if the terms of engagement shift then I think decks like this are pretty easy to exploit but if people are just showing up with a bunch of scam and decks playing to the board and so on then yeah just play a billion removal spells and even more good draw engines and that same recipe is still going to be very good this is exactly what happened at the PT right where like People were like, oh, four color in the ring and anyone trying to like play with cards is getting completely crushed. And then the top eight was just like Rhinos, Tron, Amulet and Me. Scam yeah. just <laughs> doing their thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, they, this is the classic four color cycle playing out over and over. Um, I do want to shout out. I actually like unironically, I think that the cyborg plan of three Flusterstorm, one Chalice here is... Um, really heads up and smart. Uh, I think that there is um, a lot of value in playing a less Chalice of the Void, or you want uh, the value of like the third and fourth Chalice in a sideboard against Cascade actually goes down because you bottleneck yourself in a spot where it's hard to produce multiple answers at the same time. And it's really easy for them just to be like, okay, pick that up with Brazen Bower or EOT. I'm going to kill you. And then your hand is like Chalice, 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 and none of those stop them. So maybe the answer is not like play exactly one Chalice, but the answer is certainly not play four Chalices in the sideboard here. Um, there's also added value where like, even if you're like, oh, I have a two drop I like against Cascade, um, like a Dranith Magistrate or whatever, you know, where they can't cast their spell. Um, there's added value to mix and matching with chalices because one of the other fail states is that you get to your turn two and you play that spell and then they counter it. And you just want like some number of your hands where you have two things to be able to produce two things by turn two that stop them. So um, thumbs up to playing one or two chalice in a lot of configurations. So speaking of McWinsource, he was uh, doing well in the prelims and so on with his approach to the deck, which was it grafted this more proactive game plan into the beanstalk shell where uh, he had bring to light and then this little bring to light package with an additional a time warp and the uh the valky on top of uh the the usual suspects and so that's certainly a lot of additional clunkers but again if if this is what you signed up for is a format where people are just throwing these haymakers back and forth these are good haymakers to throw but these are also ones which once you have some kind of traction you really push far ahead so bring to life elishnorn against a lot of decks if you have beanstalk or ren and six or the one ring going uh, having five virtual copies of time warp really great place to be um and then valky in a world of ring mirrors like valky is really really good there right so uh, i think if you're trying to go big this is a actually a perfect way to do it but then are you leaving yourself open to people just going underneath or the kind of inconsistencies that builds into the deck maybe the answer is the one that uh maybe tristan was ahead of his time and throwing this hot take out there on our show a few weeks ago maybe renin six is washed up and beanstalk is what renin six always wished it could be i am extremely unconvinced of that it's fair. i i think that your one ring deck is really happy with the fact that renin six is just like this functional early engine that just prevents your opponent from putting an orcish bowmasters on the battlefield in a reasonable way in a large percentage of games 
I think if it wasn't for that specific interaction, maybe you could be right. But just like the number of games recently where I've played Ren and Six against Scam and they are just like, well, I was going to flash in a Bowmasters, but like you plus your thing to four and then I like put it to one and then you just like untap and you can like kill the actual Bowmasters and you've already like gone up a land, killed the relevant half of my creature. Like what have I accomplished on this exchange? Or like you just pick up the land and kill my stuff and I die anyways. Like I, I have felt like, or like they're just a turn behind on that. Like they just don't have it immediately. Like I think that that specific interaction is just so important in enabling the rest of your deck, which is good against the rest of the cards in the Bowmaster deck that I, I don't think you can afford to skip it out. Sure. And also, if you're adding this Beanstalk engine, which is generating non-optional draw triggers, then yeah, leaving yourself more exposed to Bowmaster is uh, not where I want to be. Um, and also the the black midrange decks in this format, the, the ones going bigger than, than Scam, they often have Bowmaster and Shieldred and maybe even other ways to punish that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, with your Beanstalks, you're going to be even better against the uh, Thoughtseize, you will grief you side of those decks, but you don't want to leave yourself even more exposed to the Bowmaster Shieldred uh, half of them at the same time. The the more blue-heavy decks are <laughs> getting quite adventurous here as well. So Reed Duke's deck in this week's Modern Super League uh, was a banned Time Warp deck with Beanstalk and Ring, where uh, he even had a Misfail Plains he could fetch for to like shuffle back his Time Warps and generate an actual loop there, or... Uh, Murktide region as a threat which can trigger Beanstalk, which kind of hard to get the enough cards that you want for both of those at the same time, but eh, we're, we're close enough. And he actually won a game by attacking with Murktide region and Celestial Colony at the same time, just the, the perfect blend of old what, school and what? new school, which it may be the first actual time those two cards have been uh, in the combat zone together. I, I feel like there was at least one Waffle list with a Murktide region, but what? Yes. Um, and then I know there have been screenshots too of, you know, Logic Knot for God knows how much with three Beanstalk triggers on top of it on the stack. So you, you can really uh, lose your mind doing this uh, if you want to. Ultimately, I think some of the more kind of uh, disciplined decks in this space, like that, those are very good. If I was playing some kind of big modern SEG or face open or something, I'd expect a lot of uh, four color decks with Beanstalk and would choose my deck or choose my cards accordingly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the modern is where the uh, the bean spiral has really grown out of control um, with what people are trying to excuse under the ex like idea of like, well, I have Beanstalk in my deck, so I can just play cards that cost five. Um, and this loops back to what I said at the start, where like I think that the the next level we're gonna see is a lot of like, well. What if I just play a deck where Solitude isn't good? And this is what you were talking about with the the Lotus Breach deck in that format is just like, that deck's good against all these Beanstalk decks and a lot of other decks just because like Solitude and Fury and like Subtlety, these cards are just not good against that deck. And you just get so much equity on the fact that like the free interactive spells that your opponents are leaning on are just non-functional cards. Yeah, I think Nasa might be a really appealing card as a kind of mirror breaker here. I don't know what you put it in because it's a little blue heavy for some of the four color decks and then you could put it in these kind of blue-white control bases, but then those have their own problems. So if you can find a deck like that, I think uh, that might be pretty solid. And then speaking of cards which just use Beanstalk to do a bunch of nothing, uh, I've seen 
But mostly as a joke, these Beanoform deck lists are not all Beanstalk fixes the many, many problems that the Neoform has. But then more seriously, I've seen people put it in the the Acast style decks where you get the appeal there of, yeah, every Mirror Enforcer or better Mirror Enforcer from MH2 that they printed uh, draws a card. Every Thought Cast draws an extra card. Every Thought Monitor uh, does it too. But my issue with those decks has always been, yeah, you're playing a bunch of air so that you cast these draw spells which then just draw you more air and more draw spells and Beanstalk doubles down on every every part of that problem essentially yeah yeah it's i my experience playing against again so this is you know i just talked about the pitfalls of being stock where your free interaction is not good um i think that there's, there's just a pitfall with these decks where you're just like playing a deck that like draws more cards to like i, I don't really know what you're producing of material value uh, like when you go off and you put your deck into play with affinity, like it's not any better most of the time than when you've like played your first six power of affinity creatures and activated Urza Saga. Like the difference between like 400 power and the first 12 is not that big. And I, I think that's where a lot of like a lot of these traps are showing up for people where like the I don't think the affinity deck can realistically support playing force and negation because it's just not an artifact that goes onto the battlefield so i don't really like beanstalk just looks cool that's it and there's also the setup cost of doing this where you need enough cheap artifacts to get the ball rolling and there's a big difference here between my mirror enforcer cost zero and my mirror enforcer cost two or same thing for thought cast or thought monitor and if you just don't have the initial stuff then you can have a bunch of ha- uh, cards which literally are not castable uh and then they're kind of mocking you because yeah they, these could be so good but instead you wish you could be actually drawing any other cards instead and then you wonder like well is is the juice really worth a squeeze here yeah yeah it's just it, it, make sure you draw cards that matter and are not drawing like Darkseal Citadel Springleaf Strong. That's it. Yes. In terms of uh, specific cards that I've seen people try to pair Beanstalk with, uh, Sign of Draco has been one I've seen popping up. I, it, it's kind of mm. it's kind of funny if you if you could go back in time to let's say the Invasion pre-release and show someone Sign of Draco and tell them, okay, yeah, you're still going to be playing Magic in twenty years, but also by that point. This card will be completely embarrassing compared to the average, like decent creature. Like it is, it reflects badly on you to put this card in your deck. It would kind of be fun to see the reactions, I think. But yeah, I even if you add this additional draw trigger to Silent Draco, I don't think that makes it a playable card, which is uh, kind of wild to think about. But I think it's true. I I'm not I'm going to push back on that because I don't actually know if there has been a single point throughout the time I have played Magic where this card would not just, like, be a spirit monger level flashy, but, like, a huge trap to play. I, it's, I don't know. I, I, I have so, I think there's, like, been one or two times where I've been, like, oh, yeah, Cyan Draco, that's everything I wanted. But I think for, like, it's at least a 10 to 1 of, like, why are we trying to do this? Yeah, I, I've also seen people complain that they can't put, uh, Beanstalk in their Cascade decks, which otherwise would be perfectly suited for them. And then some people took that to its natural conclusion and said, why don't we just Cascade into up the Beanstalk? Um, which gives you a lot more freedom in some ways in terms of how you build your deck. And you can also do the same pivot of, oh, I'm against Scam. Well, uh, I guess I'm just Cascading into Sanctifier on deck or something now. Um, but 
in if you look at uh, the the redo deck, for example, which admittedly is a little kind of uh, unusual, some of these decks just don't have a lot of cheap cards they want to play anyway. And so, yeah, if you have your four up the beanstalks, maybe you just add two to three Ardenplea or something, and then you still have this, you can pitch it to Solitude sometimes, or like pick it back up to Fairy and go again. Like it doesn't actually sound crazy to me. I think that the loss of Prismatic Ending alone is something that makes me pause in this discussion. Is that card more important in a Beanstalk world? Like how happy are you to Prismatic Ending a turn two Beanstalk? Um, I am fairly happy. Well, so this relates back to like, what is the fail case of Beanstalk against a lot of decks? And I, I think that one of those fail cases is just that like your opponent's like Raghavan Spellpierce and you're like, oh gosh, my entire life fell apart. And I think you have to have some level of respect for the people still doing that. Um, and that respect is literally just playing Prismatic Ending and similar cards. Mm-hmm. And then to segue into results, uh, kind of, what other stuff just that's going on in modern uh, beneath all of the uh, the Beanstalk hype caught your eye this week? Another So in addition to Jermoka, uh, Sheldred's Edict is a card that just kind of like crept up and now I'm just realizing is just like in every deck. And um, more than like any of the other problems you discuss with Brendan Six is like the biggest thing changing how that card has played out for me just because it is... Uh, there's just like a two mana removal spell that very cleanly answers it. That's also res- a respectable card. Um, so yeah, like it's not phenomenal. It's not like game changing, but like it, it's notable that it is in a lot of places. And there's probably some second order effects I haven't noticed uh, just because I've been spending my time like playing spells that kill my opponent and not creatures. Um, but also like Agatha Soul Cauldron is is relatively living up to the hype. It looks like. Um, just like the Yawgmoth decks have incorporated it pretty seamlessly. I, I don't want to say the Hardened Scales decks have, but it's in them a lot. And the Hardened Scales deck are Hardened Scalesing pretty hard. Yeah, Scales is winning a lot and Cauldron is in those decks and the Scales players seem happy with the Cauldrons. I don't know if you can add all that up to, oh yeah, Cauldron just is a new staple of the deck now because it still has the issue of... Yeah, it's another two drop in a deck that has a billion of those, and I can buy that it's better than like your Throne of Geth or Paracondra or something. But like, it is it actually solving a fundamental issue in the Yorkmoth decks, where it's also become this uh, this go to now. This might also be the hype cycle of oh yeah, Zerk and Claudio and so on can just win with anything, and uh, it was the One Ring a few weeks ago, and now it's this, and in a few weeks it's going to be some other card instead, but. Just in terms of the basic functionality of, yeah, I turn anything into um, my Yorgmoth or Grist, like that combo has really looked very good, or uh, some of the tutor targets like Haywire Might, or I've seen people lock out their Tron opponents with uh, Soul Cauldron and Fulminator Mage, which is kind of hard. Um, there's just a lot of stuff you can do, even Wall of Roots, where let's like, say you get an ignoble hierarch and of wall of roots underneath your soul cauldron well now all of your creatures that have counters which is going to be most of them just tap for two mana and then you can funnel that into basically anything i've seen some of these lists they have uh, a single walking blister now because that can be a combo piece in its own right but then also if you're loading up counters everywhere uh then uh that that gives you this new way to speed the board and if you imprint the ballista on the cauldron then your young wolf can like infinitely reset its own undying so there's just a ton of cool stuff going on and i thought at first you might have to rebuild the deck from the ground up to fit it in but it sounds like most of these early uh yorgmoth lists 
are just replacing something, I think usually Eldritch Evolutions, with some Soul Cauldrons and then running the rest of it back. Yeah, yeah, the, the the Ballista thing is really adorable where like the wolf loops itself that, and like that that's really cute. Um I I think the the thing that people were like, well, how are my cards getting in the graveyard? Like why am I soul cauldroning? I I don't think that that's really played out to be an issue for the most part of just like I don't know, just they they sort of die as a result of the game going on. And I maybe maybe the result is like 3 is excessive, but like just because you, you're more likely to draw them in spots where, like, you wish you had another thing because they aren't killing your creatures. But that, that could also just be, like, a metagame shift depending on, you know, how many people are trying to fury you or not. It, I think it can be an issue against the, the Solitude Binding decks, but if you're against Scam or Murtide or something, the answer to how do I get my Gris in the graveyard is, well, I just play my Gris, and what are you going to do, not kill it? Right? Because I'm perfectly fine with that, too. So you, you really can put them in a tough squeeze there. Yeah, yeah. It, I I want to get back to playing Yawgmoth, but this is my problem over the last few weeks. Like, as I've alluded to in all the decks I've talked about playing, is that I I, I made that th- mention about, like, um, forcing yourself to play Modern Green as, like, a thing that I'm saying you should do and I'm not following myself. So I'm just like, I should play Yawgmoth, and then I just, like, join another league with, like, Scape Shift or uh, Twiddle Storm. It, it's a real problem these days with, with all the decks people are playing. <laughs> Yeah, a good problem to have, but, but but a problem nonetheless. Talk to me about that scapeshift deck then, because this is kind of good old-fashioned red-green Valakut, but with uh, some new bells and whistles, which actually have let it uh, keep up with everything else. Yeah, I just want to upfront say that I, I have huge thumbs up for both Twiddlestorm and uh, scapeshift right now. I think I think both are just like um, they're not like phenomenal. Like they they have flaws, but like you're playing them, understanding that, and why you're playing them. Um, the Scapeshift deck, I think the big evolution has been that just since the addition of the One Ring, the winning lists have just slowly cut Scapeshifts and Titans from the deck, which means that you you kind of have this positioning where, like, the old Scapeshift problem was that you would play a deck that was, like, four Titans and two Scapeshifts, I'm really doing it, and you would just draw hands that were, like, Titan, Titan, Scapeshift, Land, Land, Ramp, Spell, Bolt, and you're like, what what am I doing with my life? Why are my cards this way? Why are they not just more lands? And this deck is largely accomplishing that more lands thing really well by playing Wish, which you, like, just as often as you wish for your scapeshift, you're just like, I'm going to wish and play Valakit or Poseidon for my sideboard. Just like, this is three mana, it becomes a land in the worst case scenario. Um, So, like, the fact that the deck is just, like, really, really good at ensuring baseline functionality of its hand leading to its powerful plays, and then, like, the one ring is also this, like, split of, like, it is an endgame spell that will also draw you into lands to actually endgame your opponent. Uh, big fan of all that. Quick tip with that deck, because of this exact thing, I have been aggressive in sideboarding out Dryad with that deck in matchups where the, like, you want Dryad in that deck for the spots where, like, oh, I need to, like, have my lands on turn four turn into lightning bolts to manage their creatures. And I think there's a lot of spots where you don't need that and you're just, like, trading cards and like that's not really what the game comes down to and in those games i don't think dryad is very good and as a result i i think it's like a really common card to sideboard at yeah i think the the old scapeshift decks even when they were in their prime one issue they had was they were capped in how fast they could actually make a relevant play and so yeah if your average curve is ramp spell on two ramp spell on three and then my my big finish my primordial titan or my scapeshift on turn four 
well, that's all well and good, but what if that's too slow? Or what if you, you mulliganed or your resources are under attack? Because actually casting a, a shift or a titan takes a lot of rectangles. And just like an amulet, the, with the ring now, you have this very uh, low-maintenance way to just do something very important very early. And then that can turn a low-resource game into a, a high-resource game and then go on to bigger and better things. And like all of the big mana decks, this has the same property of you know your your opponent who has a, a boatload of solitudes and bindings and stuff might just look at their deck and realize okay well none of my cards functions like what what do i uh, actually do here and there's not a great answer to that for most of them um i think uh shift in particular also benefits from some of the holdover changes to to fight tron after the pt where if people are cutting their blood moons which with ring and now even worse than, than they used to be but like you don't really care about a card like Charmor, given that they're not ever getting an actual discount on it. Um, and so if there's more of those and less of the kind of big mana hate that you actually care about, then sure. I mean, this this all sounds great to me. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's also just like a depth of access to answer. Like, blood, I you know, I have lost to Blood Moon playing that deck, but it's not scary in the ways, like between Boseju and Wish, you have a lot of added ability to just like, you don't have to play a bunch of nature's claims. You just accidentally have cards that keep your deck functional when your opponent doesn't have Blood Moon, but just kill a Blood Moon. Um, so, like, it's, I mean, you know this from playing Amulet, where, like, the same thing happens, but, like, it is a little more stated in this deck just because you're already attempting to play the game at this specific longer pace. Like, you aren't, like, looking at an Amulet hand where it's like, well, this is a great burst draw hand, but it's a turn three on the draw, and I might just get Blood Moon with that deck. It's just, like... I don't know. I was, I was going to get the turn five anyways. So like, whatever, we'll just kill the thing along the way. Mm -hmm. Any uh, stray observations about uh, modern or any other format before we move in, into our, our nonsense and our discourse uh, for the week? Uh, not really. Modern is pretty good. Uh, it, you know, people are, are trying a lot of new stuff, which is good. I'm glad that uh, the, well, I guess I think the one ring is still like pretty messed up, but at least people are like, doing the things like we've moved on from the phase of the format where it feels like the one ring is just like putting cards into people's hands and it's putting them into people's hands with purpose even if it's probably the best card in the format still uh it's at least like between that and preordain we're getting some flavors of modern that we haven't seen in a long time and, and that's good i don't know if it's good long term but it's good yeah i i still think the one ring is a long-term issue of some kind but it's not it's not currently in the the sky is falling what are we meant to do is the protocol going to be ruined territory that oh, there was at least a higher chance of uh, a few months ago yeah yeah we might get you know if you made a timeline of when you thought the one ring would be told to leave the format you might get more of a yorion timeline where you're like oh it's been uh 18 months okay let's try something new as opposed to like uh oh well everyone got back into the office and it's now february 2nd and we need this cleaned on out before anyone starts on anything else yes uh so with that let's uh dredge up some of the talking points that were all over twitter recently so uh i think that the main one that got people chattering this week was cube tearless i suppose which is a a seasonal uh topic of enjoyment uh, at this stage where whenever the vintage cube on magic online goes up or more often comes down after that people are posting their uh their tier list and often the the ones that are just out there enough kind of 
get escape velocity and then everyone is talking about them and dunking on them and then people are re-dunking on those people and it becomes the whole kind of uh, unedifying mess that uh, is what keeps us all glued to uh, what used to be the bird app uh, week after week. Yeah, I have actually been taking this the reverse way of like, I think it is very interesting to see how rapidly between iterations of the cube valuations of specific cards shift. And it feels like the last like two iterations have, I have seen, you know, we talk about these cards in standard that's like, oh, look at these great seven drops. Like those cards have been reliably like, not just like Atali and Atraxa, but like um, Archon have like, rapidly moved up people's tier list this time around and uh, like cards like fable that i thought were really really stupid last time have moved down but also i i appreciate that life cycle of redesign but also like you know you also have to play against fourth year olympus in this format so that that card whew, uh if it's good in legacy oh boy it's really good in vintage cube yeah i've seen that one as the literal highest uh, non-Power 9 spell in some tier lists, or at the very least, it's in that uh, not quite S tier, but like A plus tier, along with cards like Minsk and Boo, and some, maybe some of the, the Q classics from years gone by. But looking at those lists, it is really striking how many of the, the top 50 top X cards are from the last two years. So Modern Horizons 2, no surprise, but even just a lot of the uh, supplementary sets, just the cards which are kept out of modern minus and probably for the best but then just get to go hog wild in legacy and the, the main form of exposure that uh the wider community gets to those is in vintage cube where i think there are a lot of people who had never seen fourth eolingus before the vintage cube went out this time and are probably now sick of seeing it uh, now that it's uh, come back down again yeah yeah i mean this is this was kind of my rule of thumb uh there was that big spurt in like 2020 where they just left Vintage Cube up forever for the first time because I don't know, they just, you know, people wanted to play Magic Online and had nothing else to do, so they did it. Um, and my my takeaway from that era was kind of like there were three tiers of cards you should be taking, and it's like the cards from 1993 that haven't been cut from the cube, the cards from like 1998 that haven't been cut from the cube, and then it was the cards from, you know, 2019 that haven't been cut. And it feels like that 2019 era has just kind of like stretched on to include like if you don't know what the expansion symbol is because it's not a set you could have ever drafted or opened then like that's probably one of the good ones just like check the date it's like okay 2020 x and it's from a weird set symbol probably broken and you should take it yeah those those scary cards from the first decade of magic in terms of vintage cube they almost feel like a bonus sheet at this point where you open your pack and most of it is just the really good cheap on rate stuff from the past few years but then also there's it maybe you you open a mox or a mana crypt or oh there's tinker that one was was dangerous back in the day that maybe let's see if that one still has what it takes but it doesn't feel like those cards completely define the experience the way that they used to and now it is a lot of the the, the stuff which already dominated every other format that they were allowed to for the past few years like those are still the things that kind of uh, set the terms for everything else yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I like this gameplay better than what Vintage Cube was in 2014. Like, basically, as they printed more Planeswalkers and it just became a race to, like, fast manning out some five mana threat that churns card advantage is the best thing you can do. Just, like, steadily decreased from the era where I, like, enjoyed Winter Orbing people. And then as soon as it, like, curved back around to, like, I'm attacking your Planeswalker with the questing beast that I cast off Black Lotus, that's when it just started skyrocketing back up. And I, I just like the trajectory. It's going well. 
Mm-hmm. But the the thing that sparked the the discourse uh, here was uh, some of the tier lists, where one of them in particular from uh, Matt Grenier was very, uh, I would say, bold in some of its takes. Uh, you know, Endurance Above Time Walk was one that uh, got a lot of people going. And just the, the general structure of the list, where there have been some of these in the past. Like, I think it was uh, Geeky Jackson's that caused this hullabaloo last time around, where that one had a certain philosophy to it of, yeah, if you think that mono white aggro is by far the best deck and you're always forcing it, well then, yeah, maybe it makes sense to take Solitude above any other card or, I don't know, like Umazawa's Jitte was stupidly high or something. Like, if, yeah, if you think this is just the best deck by far, especially optimizing for your goal of just be the trophy leader or something, then sure, I mean, uh, force it, take your Mother of Runes over Tinker or I, I don't know what the example would be. But this one felt like a lot more holistic in the sense of, yeah, my, my entire basis for card evaluation and format evaluation is just so different from yours. I don't know if there's a, a way to meet in the middle there. And that's what caused a lot of the, especially like feral uh, dunking and redunking and so on. I mean, people have these opinions in like every draft set. And I'm just glad that people are talking about limited in this sense and not like, I, it, as much as I am someone who like in real limited is like the data is mutable and you can kind of do what you want. I'm, I'm kind of glad that there isn't a vintage cube data that people would just like default to in a lot of the same ways. I, this is, this is, this is good old fashioned limited talk. And I'm glad that everyone is here. For yes. Yeah, but also, I do not agree with any of the decisions in that. So we're just going <laughs> to put that out there. Yes. I, I mean, I think you can debate the efficacy of the 17 lands data and so on, but there's no denying it's made the limited discussion a lot more soulless in the sense of, yeah, well, the, the default now is just, oh, yeah, well, this is uh, 1% higher on game in hand win rate or something, and not this is my experience, however loose or specific that might be and that's going to lead me to fire off this take which you could not possibly disagree with anymore or something like that um so i i enjoyed this and it's it's fun to see the kind of uh corrections to it in the sense of well now people who have a more mainstream view are posting their to list instead and those are both informative and then also they can debate back and forth over oh well does ragavan deserve to be that high or is ragavan stupidly overrated or, or all the stuff like that which like that follow-up conversation, I think, is the real gem here and not the, oh, ho, ho, you have endurance as a top game card, which, like, yeah, that's easy to dunk on. And then I, the, the thing is, the defenses of it feel quite contrarian too, whereas, oh, well, actually, Matt is a top five trophy leader on Magic Online. Uh, can you say the same thing? And firstly, a lot of them can. Some of them are, like, literal Hall of Famers or whatever. But also, would the other four people in this very conveniently selected top five trophy leaderboard with the other four agree with him on this like i i don't know i feel like some of the defenses of it like matt can say matt can say what he wants and do his own thing but the people who are like standing up for matt on those grounds like i don't really get the motivation behind that necessarily yeah i i mean i guess on one hand i do think vintage cube is more immune to like the hive mind data thing and therefore like just because redundancy is not a thing that you can reliably accomplish and like everyone knows to first pick unlocks in the in ways that I think that normal limited didn't I, I don't know if you want to call arena pods normal limited uh mm. <laughs> sorry for the excessive amount of disdain there but uh there is also the transition to like single elim drafts and like people have talked about that too but like I think that just because of the way Vintage Cube lines up, there is more room for this divergent thinking to work 
just because um, because of the singleton nature of it does not allow for a lot of the same kind of stuff we see in uh, arena cubes where or not arena cubes and in like arena draft where it is like oh well uh, we're just always going to be the red black deck in Lord of the Rings like you, you can't do that in a singleton format on the same level so yeah I, I think that there's there's room for these weirdo tier lists to be like semi-functional uh and like i i, I don't know i do want to say like imagine a tier list where like palace jailer source to plowshares mother of runes and parallax wave were all in like the 10th through 20th cards like i think that because that list it tells a clear message of like this person highly values being in white then like that people are more likely to ignore that again Going back to the fact that I do not think that, like, this list with Ulvenwald Oddity in, like, 33rd place is anywhere close to something I would say is correct. I think that there's a little bit more room to, like, stop, pause, and think about whether it's right before you just say, what the heck is this? Yes. I, so It's such a recall in 30. Okay, never mind. I, I'm sorry. I'm not defending any of this. The At least the, the, the rabid, like force mono white over everything that's at least a coherent worldview whereas this one I, I i don't think the pieces add up even just on the internal logic but in any case um well whoa, whoa, whoa. what was the what was the youtube commenter line today uh ancestral recall is overrated if you need the three cards that bad you're probably losing anyways <laughs> that, that, i mean that's a commander twitter ass take right there which given that they also don't seem to think that cards like a uh, mana crypt or soaring belong in most decks like you can see you know two two peas in the same part but anyway um with vintage cube at least there is uh you, you had the 64 person single uh elim queues you had you know money drafts and then lsv just posting these uh daily videos of the team drafts that he's been doing so you can at least challenge these people in the arena of ideas in a way that I think this is the connective tissue with, for example, that fracas I got into over um, the the limited data and limited testing where like, yeah, even just in my experience preparing for Worlds here, the single Elims have felt so different from uh, from the leagues to the point where I, I don't think they're the same format effectively. Uh, and I think that's kind of true across the board. And then even going into Constructed, uh, there was a state of the platform state of the game um output from the arena team this week where when it came to historic and alchemy they basically said yeah all of the data shows are, are, these formats are d- diverse and healthy and are kind of uh, doing what they're meant to be doing and it's like well first of all i don't know what your data says because i mean you're telling us what it's meant to say but we don't see the data so we can't quibble with the interpretation but then also we can't even compare that to public data that exists because there literally is no public data because there are no tournaments like there's no way for any of the stuff that's being said here to be tested um and so you know when they say you know in historic yeah there are a lot of decks like slivers and shrines doing well it's like well okay is this in the highest levels of mythic would this be true if there was some arena championship tomorrow or is this cherry pick data from what people are doing in platinum or something which supports the point that we decided we wanted to make coming in like this we, we there's no way for us to litigate this and then even in the content space like there's there's one guy um i think altheriax is how you say uh, his name who he is basically perpetually number one mythic in historic and alchemy and posting all of these really cool looking decks in those formats uh on a on a constant basis but we have no way of knowing 
is this guy the next big thing who given the right format and platform would just burst out and and uh dazzle us all or is he the biggest plankton in the smallest pond you could possibly imagine because there's just no one else in there there's there's no way that, that we can know um so i think the the thing that kind of unites all of those is unless you have some relatively open competitive setting for these things to be tested people can just say and do whatever they want and some of them are going to succeed at some amount of it and so drawing conclusions from that that oh yeah this thing is broken or this is the right strategy or whatever like it's just so you're just twisting in the wind there's no way you can do that because no one can actually challenge you on it yeah yeah i i don't know i get the vibes of like engaging with historic from like a secondary standpoint where like you know, when I when I like hear about vintage decks, like it's interesting and cool and like there are things that are like built to and around. And whenever I hear about historic, I kind of get the vibes of like uh you're like listening to someone else's toddler tell you about their school day, and you're like, Well, you know, maybe I'll remember someone's name in like five years and like, yeah, oh, you had this teacher, that's great. No, no amount of the other information this like four-year-old is telling me has any bearing on the rest of my life. And so when someone starts talking to me about like the like alchemy cards that are good against the one ring it just is like yeah no i just know i'm not supposed to retain that can i can i talk to you about will patbound duelist what is the what is this one okay so this is three red red for a four four with specialize ignore that don't need to know what the other five versions of this card are the relevant one when it etbs you gain control of target artifact or creature and opponent controls with mana value four or less until the end of your next turn so you can imagine how in a format and this describes both alchemy and historic where the entire thing is centered around uh bowmasters shielded and the one ring just sealing their ring or sealing their shielded like that is a massively swingy play in a way that's kind of impossible to replicate with any other card and so you know you'll see these decks which are using their now nerfed but still pretty good crucius to discard one of these four drops and the only five drop in their deck is a copy of will that they can then like proactively hedge against the opponent playing the one ring to protect themselves on their turn there's just a lot of nonsense like that or this is a really good uh would know to hit if stuff like that is your jam it's just we don't need to go any further i think you get a flavor of the uh the 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 nonsense there yeah i started looking at uh what the backsides of this card do and as far as i can tell they just say sacrifice a thing yeah there's literally no reason to know that information even if that card is in your own deck so on that happy note uh, i think that has exhausted the analysis and the nonsense uh for this week and maybe for a few weeks in the future we're still figuring out who's going to be here when uh, i fly out to vegas on saturday which it was only it felt like only days ago that that tournament was months away but also I qualified for it at the last possible moment. So th- this it's all been a blur, which uh, will all be over in a blur as well, but hopefully will be fun and successful. Uh, in the meantime, I don't know if you will have a Jarvis or uh, some other Jarvis correspondent in here in the meantime. Uh, I will let you figure that one out. And then uh, I know you'll be away for a lot of October. So someone else will step in and pick up that torch there. We will figure that out on our own time and let you know. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter over at Dom and Javier and uh, ARMLX. You can find the podcast there at Dominaria underscore pod. You can find us on Patreon, as a few of you did this week, over at patreon.com slash Dominaria's underscore judgment. Uh, you can find lots of discussion of mostly nonsense that actually exists uh, over in the Discord. Uh, links to all of that in the show notes as well. And some of us will be back soon with something. But until then, uh, take care, everyone. <laughs>